are listening to the sermon audio from Renaissance Church. We pray that this message equips you to be formed into the image of Christ as you grow in your love of God and it fuels you to love your neighbor as yourself. We are convinced that while this sermon audio is beneficial, it should only be supplemental and not replace local church involvement, the pastor God has put over your life, or your commitment to gather in person with other believers to make more disciples for the fame of Jesus. Peace be with you. Please turn in your Bibles to Exodus 23, 1 through 9. You shall not spread false report. You shall not join hands with a wicked man to be a malicious witness. You shall not fall in with the many to do evil, nor shall you bear witness in a lawsuit, siding with the many so as to prefer justice, nor shall you be partial to a poor man in his lawsuit. If you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey going astray, you shall bring it back to him. If you see the donkey of one who hates you lying down under its burden, you shall refrain from leaving him with it. You shall rescue it with him. You shall not pervert the justice due to your poor in his lawsuit. Keep far from a false charge and do not kill the innocent and righteous, for I will not acquit the wicked. And you shall take no bribe, for a bribe blinds the clear-sighted and subverts the cause of those who are in the right. You shall not oppress a sojourner. You know the heart of a sojourner, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Dear God, we thank you so much for your word and for your spirit. We ask that you please be with Pastor Rob now as he brings us this week's message. And we ask that um, we as a church are able to open our hearts to faithfully receive it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Hey, Renaissance Church family, if you have those Bibles still open in front of you, I invite you to open them up again uh, because we want to make sure that everything that I'm saying up here is what's actually being said here in in the scriptures. So if you got your Bibles, we're going to be exploring uh, chapter 20, verses 22, all the way to chapter 23 to the end of verse 9 that you just heard read right there. We had a portion of it read uh, because it kind of culminates what the entire passage passage is all about. Now, last week, we heard God himself speaking the Ten Commandments to Israel. And now Moses has traveled up Mount Sinai, and now God is expanding and explaining these Ten Commandments now in further detail. From these chapters, from Exodus chapter 20, verses 22, all the way to about chapter 24, this is commonly known as the Book of the Covenant. And all these commands, also known as judgments, are are to answer two questions. How should we live with and love this God? And how should we live with and love our neighbors? Now, you have to remember, the people who are reading this account, they're either in the wilderness wandering or they're, they're right on the banks of the Jordan about to enter the promised land. And who was in the promised land? Well, Canaanites, Canaanites who sacrificed their newborn babies on the altar of Moloch, 
who practice bestiality in all of their religious festivals. I mean, that's why we have some of these, what you might deem strange laws in these chapters, like you should not have sex with animals. Chapter 22, verse 19. Or there's punishment for those who practice sorcery or divination, this cultic worship in chapter 22, verse 18. Because that type of cultic worship involved bestiality. It involved the sacrifice of your children. But these laws uh, did not only concern um, what was going on in Canaan. It also was about personal and public holiness. But the majority of them are about justice. It's about God's mercy towards our neighbors. Specifically, the weak, the poor, the marginalized, those who are on the fringe of society. And what does this teach us about God? It's that God has a special concern for those who are weak, those who are poor, and those who are oppressed. We even see this later from uh, the, the prophet Micah when Israel failed to follow these commands. The prophet Micah says, He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? But to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. Now, here's the deal. There is many in our society today who are claiming they do justice. But most just talk about justice. And if they are indeed practicing justice, justice, you'd be hard-pressed to find somebody who's doing it with kindness, with civility. You'd be hard-pressed to find somebody who has humility. But more, we find folks with this aura of pride. And what's the reason? I believe it's because they do not understand true justice. And by they, I also mean me. So what is justice? We'll we'll never know the answer to that question until we understand what we were made for and created for. And I'm convinced once we know that and we understand true justice, then we'll be able to do justice while loving kindness and while walking with humility. And I believe that Exodus chapter 20, verses 22, all the way to verse chapter 24 talks about this type of justice. That these passages, and this will be the main point for today, will display God's concern for the poor, weak, and marginalized through, you've guessed it, the poor, the weak, and the marginalized. God displays his concern for those on the fringes through those who know him and are still on the fringes. And we'll travel down these couple chapters with two parallel paths. The first path is the justice of God. And the second path that walks hand in hand with it is the mercy of God. The justice of God always walks with the mercy of God. So first point, you all ready to dive in? The justice of God. Now, Israel is standing in between two people groups. On their historical left, in their past, are the Egyptians. And on their historical future right are the Canaanites. 
And all of these commands and judgments are display God's glory through God's image bearers, his people. And unlike their neighbors to the right or to the left, God's people were committed to multi-ethnic justice and equality. They were committed to economic justice. They were committed even to a civil justice. These people were committed to pro-life, all life, from womb to tomb. And they were even a sexual counterculture where a man wasn't permitted to have sex with a beast, nor a woman could have sex with anyone whom she pleased, including cultic prostitutes. But sex was between one man and one woman in one marriage for one lifetime. My friends, these commands were progressive and they proposed an upside down kingdom to all of the surrounding kingdoms around Israel. While the surrounding kingdoms continually pressed down and oppressed foreigners, they exploited women and children, and they forgot about the weak and the poor, God's people were to have special concern for those people. And they were to live a holy, separate, distinct life than all the other kingdoms. Why? Why were they have the special concern for the poor? Look at what Moses writes in Exodus chapter 23, verse 9. You shall not oppress a sojourner. You can read foreigner. You can read non-Israelite in that word. You shall not oppress a sojourner for you know the heart of a sojourner. For you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. Israel knew what it's like to be on the outside. They knew what it was like to be pressed down. They knew what it is like to be oppressed. And now they've tasted freedom and flourishing with life with God And notice, there are no qualifications to this command. Meaning, do not oppress any foreigner, regardless or not if they oppress you. Mm -hmm. See, one of the views that is in the mainstream media and in our culture today claims that in order for justice to be achieved, the oppressed must oppress the oppressors. That in order to have justice, you fight domination with domination. You enslave those who enslaved you. But God's justice tells us to love our enemies. To pray for those who hate you. You even heard read a few minutes ago in chapter 23 verse 6. Even if you see one of your enemy's animals, an ox, wandering around with its burden on its back. You're not to let it go so your neighbor is out several months of wages. No, you're to even bring his ox back to him, your enemy. And if you fast forward a couple thousand years and you meet the early church, that if an enemy came and killed and persecuted a member of the early church, you know what that community did not do? They did not kill the murderer. Instead, they built a bridge to welcome the enemy so that enemies can become family members in God's kingdom. This is God's justice. Not just for the foreigner, but for the poor. He has special concern for the poor. Look what we read in chapter 22, verse 25. If you lend money to any of my people with you who is poor... You shall not be like a money lender to him. 
You shall not exact interest from him. And Moses even goes on to write in the book of Leviticus that the poor and the foreigners were allowed to take freely from the Israelites' harvest around the edges of their lands. God provided provision for those who were poor, for those who were pressed down through his people who had much. Bruce Wallace, an Old Testament theologian, writes this. He's basically saying God's economy, in God's economy, the righteous are willing to disadvantage themselves to advance the community. The wicked are willing to disadvantage the community to advantage themselves. Listen, if God owns all of your wealth, and he does, then the community, God says, has a claim on it. Never to be stolen, but given radically, generously, and freely to the poor. This makes both the capitalists and the socialists a wee bit uncomfortable. But the poor also has to do with this word that kind of maybe shocked you when you first read it as you prepared to gather today. The poor has to do with slavery. We see this word slave in chapter 21, verse 1. Now, take a deep breath for a moment. Because that word makes us very uncomfortable. And, And it should. But here's what we must not do. We must not read a current definition of a word onto a word that never knew of that definition in the past. The fancy phrase for that is anachronistic fallacy. You're taking a current definition and plopping it in a time period that never had that definition. See, our current understanding of slavery is is what occurred in the transatlantic African chattel slave trade. Chattel slavery, men, women, and kids who were stolen, stolen from their families and forced into labor. This is not, I'll say it again, this is not the Hebrew definition. This is not the Hebrew definition. And how do we know that? Because Moses tells us so in the book of the covenant. In God's society, that type of slavery, chattel slavery, is punishable by death. Look at chapter 21, verse 16. Whoever steals a man and sells him, and anyone found in possession of him, shall be put to death. That means the thief of the man and the man who bought him shall be put to death. This type of slavery is inhumane. It dishonors God's image bearers. It's unjust and has zero place in any society, in any geographical location, in any history of the world. So if this is not what this means, how should we define the word slave? We should define it as a bondservant or an employee. Impoverished men and women, impoverished families were able to offer themselves, sell themselves as servitude for a career or to pay off a debt that they owed to the master. Simply put, this is contract work. Read with me in verses 2 through 6 of chapter 21. When you buy a Hebrew slave, again, think contract work, think a servant or an employee. 
he shall serve for six years, and the seventh year he shall go out free for nothing. If he comes in single, he shall go out single. If he comes in married, then his wife shall go out with him. If his master gives him a wife, and she bears him sons and daughters, the wife and her children shall be the masters, and he shall go out alone. But if the save plainly says, I love my master, my wife and my children, I will not go out free. Then his master shall bring him to God, and he shall bring him to the door of the doorpost, and his master shall bore his ear through with an owl, simply an earring, and he shall be a slave forever. It's because he has a good boss. He's a good employer. Now, this is similar to a pro sports contract, right? An NFL player is not owned by the NFL, but they're contracted to provide certain work for the NFL. Or this is similar to the military. When you enlist in the military, uh, the country doesn't own you. You still have rights. Now, some in the military might disagree with me on that a little bit, but the truth is, you have voluntarily contracted yourself to them for a predetermined period of time for performance of certain tasks and services. You see, the poor, the weak, and the marginalized were given opportunities for jobs with masters, offered a life of flourishing with a loving boss, a home, food, community. And after six years, after six years of performing that work, they could have raised enough funds to go out and now flourish in the land. They let them go out free, for free. But if it's an awful, unjust boss, you know what God says? They're free to go. You can see that in verses 26 through 27 of chapter 21. But if the servant, if the employee loves his boss, he can stay. We even see that poor families would sell, don't, don't, don't read slave there, but would sell their daughters as servants so that she had a chance of marrying into a family that is better able to provide for her. And there were even rights to protect these women so that they did not become second-class citizens or second-class wives in verses 7 through 11 of chapter 21. Now, I, I heard a pastor say, say this about this passage. We have to be extremely careful to not be prideful as we read these things. We cannot think that our culture is better than their culture. That is cultural elitism. And in fact, if you do a quick survey of the history of the world when it comes to marriages and labor, the United States are in the minority for how we view labor and how we view marriages and relationships. In fact, a woman from the ancient Near Eastern culture, she might come into our lives, our culture, that of tender or of come into my bed before we wed culture and think that we actually don't love women in our culture. I mean, we live in a culture where it's okay for dozens of women to live in the same house to perform and compete for one bachelor's potential hand in marriage and it's on TV. And we set our calendars to make sure nothing else is scheduled on that night so we can watch it. A Jewish woman from back in Moses' time might look at that and say, how dehumanizing. How dishonoring to objectify women to those sort of tasks, to that sort of shame and dishonor. 
All these laws were set up to protect the women and their children. And in every single one of these laws, if any one of these commands were broke, whether it was a woman that was struck while pregnant and the baby died, or even an ox was injured, the punishment always fit the crime. Why? Because God is a God of equity and equality. If a man killed your ox, you couldn't go burn his house down. Why? Because the punishment did not fit the crime. But if a baby was murdered in the womb, chapter 21, verses 22 to 23, it was eye for eye, tooth for tooth, wound for wound, and life for life. As you read through these laws, we see a God who is completely just, who has special concern for the poor and the weak to be treated with dig- dignity and equity. Where just He wants a society where justice is upheld. He wants a society where the marginalized are provided for. He's not just a God of justice, but he's a God of mercy, which is our second point. We see the mercy of God. All of these laws and judgments, remember, are in the book of of the covenant. And a covenant is agreement between two parties, God's people and God. And God has this further explanation for how you are to love him and love your neighbor. But if you pay very close attention to the end of chapter 20 and the beginning of chapter 24, you'll see two glorious bookends to the book of the covenant. You see the altar, the mercy seat of God. And we'll get into this a little bit more in in a couple weeks. But what this reveals is that God surrounds his judgments with his mercy. What is mercy? Well, while grace is receiving a gift that you do not deserve, mercy is not getting what you deserve. Eye for eye. See, God sets up this altar so that on it, the injustice of the people would be laid upon an innocent lamb. And there are two lambs at this altar. One is a lamb of expiation. Think exit. The sins would be prayed over, placed on this lamb, and it would be sent off into the wilderness as a symbol that God remembers your injustices and your sins no more. And because God is a God of justice, injustice requires judgment and punishment. That's why there's a second lamb. It's the lamb of propitiation. Think absorption of God's visitation, absorption of God's wrath and punishment. And that lamb was slaughtered on the altar, getting what we deserve. Eye for eye, tooth for tooth. We get mercy. Israel received mercy. Failure at these commands, listen to me, failure at some of these commands was not final. Failure is not the final word spoken over God's people. Just like God gives grace before the law, he now surrounds his judgment with his mercy. How many of you are in need of God's mercy today? 
Now, here's what I'm confident of. None of y'all watched your neighbor's vineyard burn down this past week and didn't tell them about it. It's one of the laws. You didn't set your neighbor's vineyard on fire. But I wonder if this part of the book of the covenant resonates with your soul at all. Look at verses 1 through 3 of chapter 23. You shall not spread a false report. You shall not join hands with a wicked man to be a malicious witness. You shall not fall in with the many to do evil, nor shall you bear witness in a lawsuit siding with the many so as to pervert justice, nor shall you be partial to a poor man in his lawsuit. This is courtroom language. So the judges that we saw Moses set up back in Exodus 18. We have that similar courtroom. It's a modern day courtroom that is social media. I just wonder in the past couple weeks, have you shared a false and incomplete report before you knew the whole truth? Have you remained silent or have you sided with wickedness? Have you ever perverted a story to defame a person that you did not prefer? How many times have you been partial towards others, whether to be one tribe, one race, one person, one politician or political group, or to the rich or to the poor? Or in verse 8 of chapter 22, how many of you have cursed a ruler this past week? Or verse 16 of chapter 22, how many of you have seduced someone into your bed? Now let me ask that question again. Are you in need of mercy? I am. See, this book of the covenant is set up to reveal the character of a just God. But it's also set up to reveal our flaws. But the beauty of it is that it's set up knowing that we would fail. And that failure for the people of God is not final. Because God's mercy is always available. Now, you might be someone listening in right now, or you might know somebody who doesn't ascribe to the Christian worldview. Uh, because you might believe that all these laws and anything in the New Testament, it's just culturally constructed. So from a previous culture, it shouldn't apply right now. However, you might also be the, the type of person who loves justice. You care for the poor, but at the same time, that if others don't work or perform to your standard of justice, then they failed you. You unfollow them. You cancel them. They're dead to you. You say, you aren't committed to racial justice like I am. You're not as committed to economic justice for the poor and the marginalized like I am. But could I just humbly ask you, how, how do you know what's good or bad? What type of justice is right or wrong? And when I ask that question, the folks, the, the response that I get is because it's common sense 
And every person feels on the inside that it's wrong. But why should your feelings and why should what you deem as common take precedent over somebody else's view? And the typical response is, well, it's because it harms others. Well, listen to what apologist and theologian Tim Keller writes about this. He says, you cannot insist that all morality is culturally constructed and relative and then claim that your moral claims are not. The moment you say something is harmful, you are rooting your statement in some view of human nature, how human beings ought to live, and in some understanding of right and wrong. You have a culturally constructed worldview. But what's common today? How do you know it will be common years from now? What you feel today, how do you know you'll feel it tomorrow or years from now? I want to let you in on a little secret. Most of the justice that you're after is rooted in a Judeo-Christian worldview. And what you want is a kingdom without a king. You want a God of justice, but you don't want a judge. You see, culture can never define justice because culture changes. Class systems from the poor to the middle class to the rich cannot define justice because the class that you find yourself in can change. So then what can define it? It has to be something that is unchangeable, something that is immutable, something that does not waver with the winds. It has to be an eternal God who is holy, who is just, who is good. And this is who God is. And he's created his image bearers, men, women, and children to display his justice and his mercy to the known world. Y'all, I love my children. And one of the reasons why I love my children is that when they're wronged, they want justice. You ever see that in kids before? <laughs> they know what justice is. They want eye for an eye, wound for wound. And I know this because one of my children tells me, I want them to feel how I'm feeling. I want them to hurt how I am hurting right now. You know what I tell my child? That is a beautiful emotion. That is good. Because that is God sharing one of his character traits with you. Justice. But I also have to remind them that God is not just just. He's merciful. And I love it when one of my children wrongs another and they ask for forgiveness. It's immediate forgiveness and come and play with me. This is the Father's heart. Immediate forgiveness when we recognize our wrongs, when we admit that we're wrong, when we admit that we're failed. He's ready to forgive us. He's ready to show us mercy. And God wants a world like that, that looks like him. And this method of creating a world like this is to recreate humanity in his image, in Jesus's image, that look exactly like him, that show off his justice, that show off his mercy. And that's why God sent himself in the flesh, in the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ. He picks up on the book of the covenant in his teaching. 
But like these social laws in Exodus, one commentator points this out, that when he was teaching about the law, he's not just teaching about obedience. Jesus is revealing his character. Jesus, the way that he spoke about these laws, shows us who he is and what he has come to earth to do. Look what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 38. He says, you have heard that it was said, he's referring to this book of the covenant that we just read, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone who slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you. And do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. This is our God. He says to go further, not just eye for an eye. Tell him to take the other one. We have not only committed injustices towards one another, we've committed injustices against God. For the psalmist says, it's not that I just sinned against others, it's against you, God, and you alone, the perfect and just judge. We deserve eye for eye punishment. We deserve wound for wound. But Jesus turned the other cheek. He took the eye for eye punishment. He took the tooth for tooth punishments. We deserve on the cross. See, Jesus is the only one who upheld the law of God perfectly. But he died as if he did not obey the law. For those who had, who had not obeyed the law, the one who knew no sin, Jesus Christ, took our sin so that we can be swapped and become the righteousness of God. Jesus is both the lamb of propitiation. He absorbs the wrath of God, our punishment. And he's also the lamb of expiation who takes away the sins of the world so that God will remember them no more. And even more, Jesus embodies the just and merciful society that the law tried to make in the book of the covenant. He fulfilled it all in his flesh and he fulfilled it by fulfilling it towards us, me and you. Jesus has made himself to us who were spiritually impoverished. That even when we try to do justice, we're not doing it with kindness and we're not doing it with humility. Jesus has made himself known to us who are too spiritually weak to save ourselves, who are out the outside. We are not holy. But he welcomes us in because the Holy One was crushed for us so that we can take his robes of holiness and righteousness and stand forgiven at the foot of the cross in the presence of God, the judge. Amen. We were the foreigners that this Jewish man, the creator and sustainer and savior of the world, said, come on in at the cost of my own life. We have been shown mercy. And now in light of this mercy, 
we are now to live out God's justice and mercy. You see, and we don't have to do this alone because the same spirit that raised Jesus Christ from the dead now lives inside of us who believe in Jesus and is training us to be a people who do justice, who love kindness, who walk humbly with our God. And since he loved us when we were spiritually impoverished, spiritually marginalized, that means we can love anyone from anywhere, no matter what their standing, position, race, richness, or background. What are we created for? We're created to know God and make him known because he has first loved us. Now we get to love him in return through how the way we love and live with others. And God's church, when it was birthed on Pentecost, They were the first religious group ever to be a group that was committed to racial and ethnic diversity and justice. They were the ones who were ridiculed for showing showing love towards the poor and the marginalized. They were committed to civil justice. They didn't trade reviling for reviling. They didn't trade hurt for hurt or wound for wound because their savior didn't do that. They were pro-life, all alive. They would rescue children who were thrown out onto the streets and adopt them. And they were a sexual counterculture showing off that marriage was between one man and one woman and both are equally honored because both are equally created in the image of of God. And that church was ridiculed by the pharisaical and religious right and the irreligious left of the first century. Just like the church today is ridiculed by the pharisaical right. I know I have the hand in the wrong side. I'm using my left hand right now. It's ridiculed by both sides because this political kingdom here on earth is not our home. We are sojourners with a king who will never be dethroned, a king who loves justice and loves to extend mercy. And now we have been recreated in Christ Jesus. The old creation is gone. And we are brand new to be a voice for the voiceless, to be defenders for the defenseless, to care for the vulnerable. And we're doing this because we need to give a picture of that ultimate reality that's coming, that one day, God is going to create a brand new society when Jesus returns. He'll finally create that perfect culture we all long for, that perfect kingdom that reflects his character. There'll be no more tears, no more pain, no more death, but we will live at peace with one another. But until that day, because God has made himself known to us in Christ Jesus, we now make him known as we love and show special concern for the poor, the weak, and the marginalized. Because such were we. My friends, how good is our God? Let's go show him off to our neighbors. Let's pray. Spirit of the living God, we ask you to fall fresh on your people right now. That they, they would not hear these words and feel condemned. They would hear these words.